I V M. News Kids on the Block. We bring to you stories that top the nation's papers, fresh from the IBM and the Senate National School Desk. This show is brought to you by Intel. Future banana wonderful with an Intel Power Laptop. Hi, I'm Kavya. And I'm Anya. Civic will not be able to join us today, but I will kick us off into the first story of this episode, which is comes to us from Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was hit by the deadliest earthquake in two decades on Wednesday when a 5.9 magnitude earthquake struck the country's east side. It killed more than a thousand people, and that's just told right now. But obviously, there have been told for right now, so we will see an increase, and we will see the actual number revealed soon. But this is just an estimate. This comes at not a great time for Afghanistan because they are currently a Taliban-ruled country. They don't have the strongest. They have a like a weakening economy. So this is just another kick when they're already down. The earthquake registered at a depth of 10 kilometers, according to USGS. While around a thousand people have been killed, at least one thousand five hundred people have been injured across districts. So the timing, the earthquake occurred in the night, which led to higher casualties. It was reported, and another thing is that this comes at a time where twenty million people in the country, half their population, experienced starvation and hunger, according to the United Nations. Like I said, the Economy of Afghanistan is already crippling, so now they will have to replace hospitals and schools and houses and other buildings and architecture, as well as compensate for losses. It is really a devastating situation for a country that is so heavily dependent on aid from other countries. So I hope that they are able to find a way to get through this and salvage their economy and just get back up again. Um, and yeah, our hearts go out to all the families of the victims. Thank you so much for that, Kavya. With that, we'll go into our next story, which is also about just countries in the South Asia region crippling economies, and that comes from our one of our neighbors, Sri Lanka. So recently, there's been a series going on in Sri Lanka, an ODI series versus Australia, where they've been playing five, where they are set to play five ODIs as part of the series. But on the twenty first of June, Sri Lanka secured victory in the series. By winning the fourth ODI by four runs, there were certain points where Australia was like really getting into it and seemed to have taken control of it. It was a must-win game for Australia, but Sri Lanka's spinners ambushed them, according to ESPN Cricket Info's report, and they took it away. The four-run win sealed the series three-one, and it was Sri Lanka's first bilateral series victory at home over Australia in thirty years. Sri Lanka and De Silva. were able to really set up sri lanka's innings and they lost their final two wickets because of run out however australia's bowling had been carried by pat cummins australia also is currently riddled with injuries um some of the key players like steve smith and marcus stoinis have been playing because of injuries but needless to say it was a great victory for sri lanka and not just in terms of cricket but also Currently, um, we've talked about this before. Sri Lanka has been struggling because of their country's economy. There was an article on Cricket Info by Bharat Sundaresan where he basically writes about how I'm going to quote a bit from the article. He writes, while they continue chanting and hollering out anti-government slogans, life strangely goes on as close to normal as you could imagine all around them. It's Saturday evening, and while most of the weekend revelers Do give the protesters some attention. You see joggers almost obliviously zigzagging their way through the crowd, and even young couples blissfully exchanging sweet nothings along the promenade. 
he then goes on to write hope is certainly in the air for a few hours as the home team pulls off one of their best ever odi victories of all time chasing down 292 in a comprehensive fashion the fact that it's patum nisanka one of their rising young stars who orchestrates the win with an awe inspiring median turn only adds to the momentary explosion of joy and self belief around prindasa and around the country and he also quotes this this is one of my favorite quotes and i saw it on cricket info's instagram we paid 14000 rupees a ticket to come here for the match for the next 7 to 8 hours we don't want to think about the economic crisis or talk about the government what this sri lankan team is doing for us is giving us hope during such a hopeless period this is a quote from one of the fans at the match and that being said the sri lankan prime minister had says that the economy has collapsed and they will now be speaking with the international monetary fund because that is their only path to revival sri lanka needs according to hindustan times sri lanka needs 6 billion dollars in the upcoming months to prop up its reserve pay for ballooning import bills and stabilize their currency the prime minister further said that they intended to enter into an official level agreement with the imf by the end of july this past tuesday the hamilton reserve bank limited which holds more than 250 million of sri lanka's 5.875% international sovereign bonds due july 25 filed a suit in the new york federal court seeking full payment of principal and interest after the country defaulted last month and so i think that cricket is yet again sports and cricket of course have are yet again giving a country hope but regardless sri lanka is really suffering and they could use a lot more of that hope thank you anya with that we will take a little break with intel power laptops and we'll be right back welcome back to news kids on the block our next story for you today is something that i actually read um in the hindustan times and This story really touched my heart, and it was one of I think it was just a really different story. It's an article titled "A Daily Walk to School from Myanmar to India," and basically it talks about how in February 2021, after there was a military coup in Myanmar, most of the schools, especially in areas that were bordering India, were forced to shut down. And then in April 2022, Mizoram, a state in India. their school started to open after covid and after the pandemic sort of fizzled out and basically it, this article just talks about how um this one student mangui and about 300 to 500 other students started crossing this international border every day to keep their education going the article writes every day the walk from their home takes close to half an hour on days when the schools are open personnel from mizoram police keep the iron gate on the border open from 7 am to 9 am to allow the school bag carrying children to enter The police post is the only one with personnel manning the gate. There is a customs office a few meters away from the bridge, empty and forlorn. As the clock strikes nine, the chains are loosely placed on the gate, which restricts people with bags but leaves enough wiggle room to cut across. The Mizoram police said that there is not a specific number of students from Myanmar who come to attend the school in Zokhautar on a regular basis, but some days it goes as high as five hundred. There are nine government and private schools in Mizoram that they go to, and you know they have not only indian students but also refugees from myanmar francis selo and a principal of the saint joseph school says that students from myanmar lost out on their studies with covid and the violence they may have fallen behind so we have added three new classrooms a 12 year old student wrote that she missed out on classes in her country and she should have been in class 6 but now she's studying in class 5 and you know the article is quite long and and they talk about a lot of different things just about how the refugees work and how they you know work together to try and bring education 
back for these students but i think that this story was just really heartwarming because it just talks about the power of literacy and how forget the fact i mean we all know that covid had a huge impact on most students life irrespective of their socio economic background or irrespective of their country's political status um but then to kind of not go to school because of a pandemic and then have your country erupt into violence and that literally shutting down your schools i think that this story just made my day because it was so something so simple kavya imagine like just walking across the border for half an hour to get to school and then going back it was just a really touching story and i really enjoyed it and if you have a chance you should do it Thanks, Anya. I think I agree with you. I think education and literacy is just something we take for granted because we have access to it so easily. But for people that don't, it really shows the power of what it can be, and the fact that they were willing to walk that much to just to get an education just shows the importance of it and how much it really means to people and how much we take it for granted. I will take us into the next story, which is a bit of controversial news about the FINA, which is the world governing body for swimming. They have voted. to effectively ban transgender women from participating in the women category of swimming competitions the vote had a 71.5% approval at the FINA under the previous policy trans women had to maintain levels of bodily testosterone within the female range but this new policy states that women cannot participate in the female category if they have undergone any aspect of male puberty after the age of 12 Obviously, this does come as a pretty devastating blow to transgender women who are a part of the sports, or just generally, because they are trying to integrate, kind of own their new identity, and this isn't exactly helping them do that. And they shouldn't be deprived of playing a certain sport or swimming or doing anything just because of the way that they identify. However, there was also a new category that was announced that would be introduced, known as the open category, where which trans women will be able to participate in i think just overall to summarize it it may have its reasons and its science behind it but it shouldn't it shouldn't result in a lack of participation from trans women and we're already seeing a lack of we don't have a lot of trans athletes and while the number is growing there shouldn't be rules that prevent trans athletes from being able to play a sport or do something that everyone else can do so yeah we'll that we'll take a quick break with intel power laptops and we'll be right back Hey Anya, Kavya, check your watches. It's time for our next segment. Time to brainstorm. Powered by Intel. Question of the week: What do you think is the most important thing one must think of before they buy a new laptop? As someone who had a lot of problems switching between a tablet and a smartphone during the early days of the lockdown, I'd suggest getting an Intel-powered laptop. It ensures quick multitasking, and you can easily search for facts and take notes while the classes are running on the side. The next laptop I plan on is going to be one which can run all my favorite games with ease. It needs to be one that can process graphics really well. I hate it when I have to play games on low resolution settings. It just takes all the fun out of the visuals. Well, my new laptop is certainly going to be one which features a powerful processor. I prefer getting an Intel laptop because their processors perform really well for all my needs, be it gaming or running power intensive software. Intel PCs do it all. Besides that, when I buy an Intel powered PC, I also get access to their digital readiness programs, which help me learn a lot about artificial intelligence and how that works. Future banao wonderful with an Intel powered PC.
Welcome back to News Kids on the Block. Our next story for you today is some really happening and important and vital national news, um, which is the 2020 presidential election uh, in India. Of course, the Indian presidential elections work by the president being indirectly elected by members of state legislative assemblies as well as members of the Rajya and Lok Sabha. The electoral college. For the 2022 round, comprises of 543 Lok Sabha MPs, 233 Rajya Sabha MPs, which excludes the nominated members, of course. And uh, all in all, there are 4,033 MLAs across the entire country. The value of votes for this election is pegged at 543,200, and uh, the MLAs is pegged at 543,000. 231 which places the total electoral college votes to 10,86,431 50% of the votes will be accounted for and by the Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha MPs or the union and 50% by the state MLAs to ensure fair representation all of this information has been presented to us courtesy of BQ Prime um and with that we'll take you into a brief overview of the two presidential candidates for this particular round Um, I'll go first with the BJP's pick for president, who has made the news for quite a few reasons recently, um, and that is Draupadi Murmu. She is currently sixty-four year old, and if she does, she will become the first tribal woman to become president of India. As the BJP parliamentary board was discussing, BJP chief JP Nadda said that the board discussed over twenty names for presidential nominees, and they decided that they wanted to pick someone from East India, a tribal as well as a woman. she has been a two time bjp legislator from odisha and she was a minister in the navin patnaik cabinet when biju janata lal ruled the state um, with the support of the bjp she has according to ndtv she has diverse administrative experience having handled ministries such as transport commerce fisheries and animal husbandry in the odisha government she began her political career as a councillor becoming the vice chairperson of the rai rangpur national advisory council or the nac She also rose to the rank of national executive member of the party's scheduled tribe morcha in Odisha. She's an arts graduate from the Ram Devi Women's College in Bhuvaneswar and she has spent over two decades in politics and social service. She's the first governor of Jharkhand to have completed a 5-year term. She was born into a Santali tribal family in the Baidapusi village of the Mayurbhanj district in Odisha. Her father and her grandfather were village heads under the panchayati raj system so it's safe to say that she is a very very interesting pick for the presidential candidate and she will definitely bring to the table some very diverse and interesting perspectives given her background both personally as well as her illustrious career that she has already set thanks anya i will be telling you guys about the joint opposition's candidate who is yashwant sinha he was set to be the opposition's unanimous choice after they held their second round of talks on tuesday to discuss the presidential elections yashwant sinha began his political career in 1984 in the janata party and then joined the bjp from 1992 to 2018 in 2021 he joined the trinamool congress and he was made its national vice president yashwant sinha has is a lot of experience and that and that's what he's going to be able to bring to the table He's 84 years old and has been has served as the union minister of finance, the minister of external affairs, and other things as well. So he has a lot of experience behind him. He has a lot of and experience obviously is very valuable. So yeah, I think it will definitely be a fight to remember. So that is all we have for you today on New Skids on the Block. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of New Skids on the Block brought to you by Intel. If you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other podcasts on the IVL network. We'll see you next week. But still then, do share this episode with your folks. Future will now wonderful with an Intel powered laptop. And don't forget to do your homework.